Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 188 of the Necessary Roughness Podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic. Hope you all enjoyed the divisional weekend. Weekend full of pretty good games. We'll break down each and every one. Three, well, two close ones. One that got close-ish, and one that obviously, uh, you know, it happens. You're not going to get four tremendous ones at all times, but, um... Here we are, walking into Championship Sunday. Yep, both games on Sunday. We'll break down, we'll talk injury report, we'll talk previews of the matchups. But first things first, we're going to start this episode like we start every episode, with my standout seven. And I can't see any better way of doing the standout seven this week than dedicating the top four to really a nuts and bolts breakdown of the games we had on Divisional Weekend. Let's keep it chronological. Our first game was the Houston Texans, the upstart Houston Texans, heading to the DMV to take on Baltimore at M&T Bank Stadium. And realistically, this game was a tale of two halves, you know. In the first half, Houston kept it balanced. It was 10-10 at halftime. A lot of penalties, you know, some ticky-tack stuff to where, you know, if this game stayed close, you might be wah wah wang at the referee's you know, talking about scripting and stuff like that, but in the second half, Baltimore just turned it up. I mean, 24 unanswered in the second half. And you can see right away why people think, you know, coming into the postseason, they were the team to beat in the AFC, maybe the team to beat in the NFL. And uh, after a performance like that against the Texans, it's it's pretty clear why, and it's, it's going to be a tall task for any team that's going to be facing them this season, particularly for Kansas City, if you're facing them on the road. On the Baltimore side of the stat docket here, Lamar Jackson, efficient passing, 16-22, a buck 52, two touchdowns, 100 yards on the ground for him, two touchdowns there as well. The impressive part is the rest of the backfield, right? Dalvin Cook came in, had eight carries for 23, nothing crazy, but Justice Hill and Gus Edwards combined for 23 carries for a buck 06. They dominated this game on the ground. They dominated this game on the defensive side. And uh, Houston had no answers, if we're being completely honest. Now, like I said, it's nothing against, you know, Bobby Slowick, who is a hot candidate this year, the OC for the Houston Texans. They just didn't have enough, whether it be strategically, schematically, talent-wise. They just didn't have enough. They're ahead of schedule coming off of a high draft pick with a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach to be this far. And you know what? They can look themselves in the mirror and stand tall because this was a great year for them. Um, in terms of the statistics in this one, Stroud didn't have a great game, 19-33 at buck 75. Um, on the ground, they did little to nothing, combined for 14 carries for 38 yards. Yeah. It wasn't great. Would it have been different if Tank Dell was out there? Maybe, but Tank Dell is not a 24-point swing. He's not Calvin Johnson with a jetpack on, unfortunately for Texans fans. Um, Major takeaways from this one? You know, as far as the four games go, this one might have the least. Houston, riding high, and unfortunately crock the clock, excuse me, struck 12, and, uh, well, you know how the story ends. Unfortunately, they'll be heading home. Our next game also featured a one seed. The San Francisco 49ers played host 
to the Green Bay Packers in a game that, admittedly, I thought, a couple weeks ago, I thought if this matchup would occur, I'd be like, yeah, you know, it would look like the Ravens-Texans game did. But the Green Bay Packers put up one heck of a fight. I tell you what, on the road in this game, winning at the end of three quarters. Now, admittedly, they didn't look tremendous out there. Uh, Jordan Love ends this one with a really, really bad interception, but admittedly it would put it on brand with the comparisons they were making to Packer QBs of old. Sorry, Packer fan, not trying to rip you, but it did look farvish um, across his body into double, triple coverage. It was a horrible, absolutely horrible throw. Um, it was It was odd. It was odd. This was a good game for them. They played their hardest. Huge returns in this game from from Keyshawn Nixon, you know, giving them a little bit of a jolt. Um, Great touchdown for Bo Melton. If anyone had Bo Melton on their uh, parlay for the postseason, good for you. You You're probably the only one. Um, it's, It's intriguing moving forward for Green Bay. I said coming into the year they just need some flashes from Jordan Love. They got a heck of a lot more than that to show them that they're on the right track here. But it is interesting to note, since he was sitting on the pine behind Rodgers, he's a little bit older. Going to be entering his age 26 season. Contractual things are going to be coming a lot sooner than they would if he was just a normal rookie quarterback. It's going to be interesting to see how they approach some of these things, obviously. You might want to buff up the receiving core, but then again, you probably have wanted that since Rodgers was there. Without Rodgers' contract on the book, that might be easier. Mike Evans will probably be a very high-value target for a lot of teams this offseason. And uh, I tend to think Green Bay might be one of them as well. I put them on the same track of sorts because LaFleur has been to the postseason before. This is not a brand-new regime. He's not a brand-new head coach. And some of the players on this team have been to the postseason, right? Like, it's not a completely fresh restart. They have Aaron Jones. They had A.J. Dillon. They have Jair Alexander and some of the guys on defense like Darnell Savage. Obviously, you want to walk away with a win. You hold the 49ers to 24. Hold them to 24, I'm saying. Um, Unfortunately, you just... It came down to a kick, and... Well, the kick missed. Um, Obviously, it came down to the interception. But, realistically... And then you have a little bit of a controversy here that I wanted to talk about. Because, during the broadcast, it was alluded to that Coach Matt LaFleur said that anytime his kicker was going out to kick, he was praying. And LaFleur later said, extremely disappointing how it was portrayed. I've been a part of production meetings ever since I became a coordinator. Never had an experience like that, but it is what it is. I talked to Anders, Anders Carlson, their kicker. I think anytime something's out of your control, kind of saying it in jest and having fun with it, it got portrayed uh, in a different way manner. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So he was kind of saying it as a joke, it seems, but it was played completely straight by Tom Rinaldi on the broadcast. And usually I'm a Tom Rinaldi guy, but uh, very odd. Very, very odd. And that would not be our only commentator comments of the week here. 
Uh, would be the only ones pertaining to this game. But takeaways as far as San Francisco goes, Purdy played okay. 23 of 39, 252. Debo gets hurt in this one early, right? Of course, again, um, we're thinking he's going to go this week, but we'll get to that when we get to the injury report part of the episode. Christian McCaffrey did what he does, gets in the end zone twice, has a buck 30 all-purpose. George Kittle looked good. Huge catch over the middle from Jawan Jennings in this game that Purdy just arced just barely over the Green Bay defender. Um, two picks for Dre Greenlaw. You don't see that too often, but no sacks for the San Francisco pass rush led by Nick Bosa, which is interesting because if that's going to be the case against Detroit, I don't think they're going to be able to hold him to 21, but we'll find out when we get there in due time. Our third game of the weekend, taking us to the Sunday slate. We had their opponent, the Detroit Lions, playing host to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, this was an interesting game. It was pretty pretty consistently tight until we got to the fourth quarter. Detroit pulled away a little bit. Obviously, Tampa Bay tried to get back in with the touchdown to, I believe it was Mike Evans, didn't get the two-point conversion, they wind up down eight. And then it ends with the Baker Mayfield interception, which was not great. Um, I'll say this in defense of Baker. Detroit was coming after him all day long. I believe he was sacked four times in this game. Um, had the tipped interception early to Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who we'll talk about in a second. But, man, it was uh, for a team that, like, you know, 23 isn't pitching a shutout. But they were all over Baker Mayfield. It got close later. Actually, it was close throughout, I should say. Um, they were able to hold on and pull away later. But, man, <laughs> that pass rush looked pretty darn good. Baker did go for 349 and three touchdowns, though. And admittedly, Rashad White didn't touch the ball as much as I probably expected him to in this one. And I'm sure some Buccaneer fans might feel similarly. Um, he winds up with 13 touches for about 91 yards. Nothing crazy. Mike Evans had a huge game. Um, Godwin was a, a factor a little bit, K. Dotton as well. It's a weird team. See, we have all three stages of uh, contender here in our first three losers. We have the Houston Texans, who are ahead of schedule, right? Nobody expected them to get this far. They're very young, still building. Okay. Then you have Green Bay, who has a little bit of a core, that was semi-successful before, but they've also swapped out quite a few pieces, right? Rodgers no longer there. Devontae Adams no longer there. Some pieces changing on the defensive side. But then you have Tampa Bay, which, you know, is a couple of years removed from being a championship-caliber football team. Titled football team. Um, and you still have a lot of the headliners from that team on this team. You still have Mike Evans. You still have Godwin. Uh, on the defensive side, you have some young names in Antoine Winfield Jr. and guys like that, but you still have Vita Vea, you still have Levante David. You know, Baker plug-and-play on this team turned out to be pretty good. So the intriguing thing to me is going to be, with Baker entering the open market again, will they be interested in bringing him back? I tend to assume so. But with their offensive coordinator no longer being with the squad. Do they think that maybe we'll hire a new coordinator and we'll see what the new coordinator thinks? I don't know. Let me know what you think, Tampa Bay fan. Comment section or social media, all social media, at Nick Donatic, N-I-K-D-O-N-A-D-I-C. 
I'm Team Baker. I was Team Baker when he was in Carolina last year, and it didn't go so good for him. So I'm not the one to ask, right? But, man, I uh, I tend to think it's the way to go. We can talk about, you know, the timeout left behind at the end of the game by Todd Bowles. And, eh, I don't know. We, we don't really need to even go there. Do we think it's going to make a difference? Could it, could it have? Yeah. If I'm rooting, if I'm wearing a creamsicle jersey, a creamsicle Josh Freeman jersey, right? I am screaming at my television, why don't we take the timeout? Who knows what could happen? You blocked the field goal. You got to make him go for it, whatever. Um, but I get where Bowles is coming from, I guess, that it's over. And the team had already taken that hit in terms of morale and in terms of the way they were viewing the game, so they just let it end. Um, a little odd, truthfully, but, you know, I use the term fireable offense a lot. That is not even close to even being on that list. Successful year, for the most part, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, especially considering they beat the defending NFC champions in a playoff game. Like, that happened, guys. So, you can hold your head up high, Baker Mayfield and the Tampa Bay boys. Um, On the other hand, Detroit's still playing. I talked about how the only way I could see this being a Tampa Bay win is if Jared Goff straight up started turning the ball over. And in this game, Baker's the one that turned the ball over. 30-43 for Jared. 287, two touchdowns. Jameer Gibbs looked great on the ground. I said in the pregame uh, discussion we had last week, I want more Gibbs. I want more Jameer Gibbs. I know Montgomery is, you know, the veteran, the lead back. He's kind of the bell cow, I guess, in terms of he's the more powerful of the two, and Jameer Gibbs is the younger, more explosive athletic runner. I mean, 13 touches for a buck 14. You look great. What are we doing? What are we doing? Not saying David Montgomery's a bad back, you know. He had 13 touches for 47. He played pretty decent. He can be a change of pace, but I think as we go on here, they're going to need that explosiveness, especially if they want to beat San Francisco, if they want to win the Super Bowl. Speaking of explosiveness, we saw Jamison Williams with a couple of catches this week. I tend to think if we're going to wind up in a situation where Detroit's down and they got to make a big play, it's got to be Jamison Williams on a play fake or, or some kind of a trick play. His speed is tremendous. He's fully recovered at least from what we understand from the knee injury he had as a rookie coming into the league even. So his speed could be a factor that San Francisco may not account for coming into this game. Now, am I just shooting out of left field? Maybe. Maybe he'll have three targets and one drop. I don't know. But if I had a guy as fast as him and we're facing the uphill battle of facing San Francisco on the road, you know what? Let's play every card we've got. It's a pretty good card to have. Before we move on here, let's talk about the Chauncey Gardner-Johnson thing here. Um, what What is going on here? What is going on with Chauncey Gardner-Johnson? And why is he just, I don't know. So we have the thing pregame where Baker Mayfield was asked about comments made by Chauncey Gardner-Johnson in which he said uh, something to the effect of, Tampa Bay, man, those boys would be good if they got a real quarterback. And he mentioned some of the supporting cast, to which Baker Mayfield kind of poo-pooed his comments because he mentioned Russell Gage, and Russell was injured. He did not play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, then, of course, as fate would have it, the tipped interception I referenced, which went off the hands on a high throw, kind of a 50-50 blame there because it was too high for Evans, but then Evans got his hands on it. 
mean, that's his job to try and snag that one. I don't know. Um, he tips it up in the air. It goes right to Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who then tosses the ball back at Mayfield as they're going out of bounds, which I am completely lost as to what the taunting rules are at this point, if we're being honest, but uh, evidently that is not taunting. Then after the game, he was kind of taking a victory lap talking about it. Look, I think Chauncey Gardner-Johnson is a pretty decent player, but I don't know why, considering you're the favorite going into the matchup, why you would bother giving any sort of attention to comments you'd made, any sort of attention to the Buccaneers team building, giving a shout out to their receiving core when you play DB, you catch a tipped interception, and then, like, I don't know, it's very weird to me. Um, maybe, like I said, you know, I'm a Baker guy, I guess. I like Baker Mayfield, but it could be any quarterback. You just kind of look like a doofus when you're celebrating the tipped interception. It's it's kind of like those guys that'll go, oh, incomplete, and they're celebrating, waving their arms side to side when the throw was just overthrown or the ball was dropped and the guy was open. Like, whatever. All right, figured we'd throw it in here because we like to mention a little bit of the buffoonery, some of the shenanigans, but... It is what it is. Our fourth game of the weekend was quite the spicy one. We had the Buffalo Bills playing host this time to the Kansas City Chiefs in a game which was, yeah, I would say probably the game of the weekend. It edges out the Green Bay game because of the storyline, just coming into it, the storyline. And then, of course, very quickly we have Stephon Diggs putting the ball on the turf. Here's the interesting part to me. We've had, I believe at this point, if if memory serves, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, four different discussions this year about the referees pertaining to Chiefs games. And this dates back years, by the way. Maybe not just Chiefs games. Maybe it's Philly games. Good teams getting good calls. I start talking about superstar calls in basketball. Then I start talking about the strike zone for good pitchers. Anyway, what we had early in this game which led to a field goal, a scoring drive for the Buffalo Bills, was a fairly blatant illegal forward pass by Josh Allen on a lateral, I'm using air quotes, which was not challenged by the Chiefs, which you want to put the blame on Big Red, fair enough, but why wasn't it called? Like, oh, why don't you throw a challenge flag there? Why don't you just call it? Why don't you call it on the field? And then later we have a catch along the sideline by, I believe, Dawson Knox that I wasn't necessarily convinced was a catch either. Um, And no challenge flag thrown on that one. I didn't catch a replay of that one, though. Caught a replay of the lateral, and it was not a lateral. Um, This was a good one. This was... Pat Mahomes missed a handful of throws in this game. Not too many, but especially one of the drives late in the first half, he had Kelsey in the end zone, and there was just a little bit of a miscommunication. Also, like... We talked about it last week with the snowballs, the, the the Bills fans just throwing snowballs during live plays, and it happened again, and, like, nothing was done. I'm a little confused how, like, was there an in-stadium announcement or something and we missed it? Like, can we get someone to talk about the fact that they're throwing snowballs at the players on the field while the plays are going on? Like, this isn't Giancarlo Stanton getting hit with a thrown-back baseball while he's rounding the bases. Like, no, this isn't active NFL red zone opportunity and there's just randomly snowballs raining down just like there were the week before but hey what are you going to do we're going to jump ahead we're going to jump ahead to the fake punt 
with DeMar Hamlin because the ending circumstances of this game were a whirlwind of emotion, I'm sure, for Bills fans and Chiefs fans, and a whirlwind for me as someone who is trying to be a quote-unquote analyst talking about this game, or at least to talk about it in an interesting manner and bring it to you guys. Um, what was that? I don't understand. And oh, the element of surprise. Well, yeah, sure, it's surprising because it, because why? Like, it's not like the Bills' offense was playing poorly, by the way. Allen goes twenty-six to thirty-nine, a buck eighty-six, nothing crazy, but he runs for seventy-two. James Cook runs for sixty. They were playing well enough to keep up with the defending champions. I mean, Mahomes only threw for two fifteen in this one. Pacheco had a great game on the ground, going for just under a hundred. Um, I'm. I, uh, I'm dumbfounded. It's not like... I don't even know. I don't even have a comparison for you. Because they mentioned post-game that it was something about the element of surprise, and obviously you have the element of surprise because you hadn't attempted something like this before. But if you hadn't attempted something like this before, why are you doing it now? And look, I get it. You know, you want to talk about, uh, hey, let's say the Philly-Philly play, right? The Philly special with Nick Foles. Obviously, that's something that was a surprise. They didn't see it coming. But evidently, they had prepped it well enough to where they were confident and they could run it and it was wide open and they got the job done. You look at the replay. The Chiefs defender is staring at DeMar Hamlin the entire time, motioning over with him. Did DeMar Hamlin play wide receiver or running back? Or was he a special teams return man in college that I don't know about? Look, I don't know the lore here. But... He's not exactly, didn't seem to be the most elusive guy. The blocking wasn't tremendous. And, you know, I'll say this. If the game ended the way it should have at that point, which would have been, what, 34-31, 34-24 even, I think Sean McDermott is on one of the hottest seats possible. Because there were murmurings all year, even before the comments that were bizarre from him from years ago came out, that they needed to win. They needed to get over the hump. Time to get over the hump. Time to get over the hump. And they didn't. They didn't. You could look at their finish for the year. They got eliminated by the Chiefs. Again. Okay. Well, how does that compare to the other years where they got eliminated by the Chiefs? They weren't the one seed. They won their division on the final day of the season. Okay, tremendous. You won the division, but you'd won the division in years past. So you're not making any progress. You're stagnating, right? This is the argument I made when talking about Mike McCarthy and Dallas, right? You can argue with Sirianni, at least they'd been, Sirianni and the Eagles, that is, they've been to the Super Bowl. They've been to the mountaintop. They were close to the final peak. Just didn't get there. Okay, fair enough. McCarthy hasn't been there in a long time, and not only that, he hasn't even come close to it while coaching the Dallas Cowboys. Okay, well, for McDermott... If things would have gone as they seem to be going after the DeMar Hamlin botch, um, and I mean botched call, not a botch by DeMar, if that would have been the end of their season, so to speak, you went out like you always did on a trick play you never run with with a guy who's not really a skill position player. He's not an elusive guy. You didn't sneak a running back in the backfield. You didn't on the last second, run out an 11th guy who was, you know, Khalil Shakir and get him to try to run a weird end-around play or something. No, you would have gone out with a trick play to the team that always bullies you 
in the manner they always bully you, except this time you got to sell tickets for it. Tremendous. I'm glad you got to rake in some extra revenue, but (laughs) what are we talking about here? And the reason I'm dancing around saying it is because early in this game, Mecole Hardman fumbled the ball. Okay, you know what happens. And then, in, look, admirable fashion, the Andy Reid-led Chiefs offense went back to Mecole Hardman on an end around in the red zone, and he fumbles through the red zone, fumbles through the end zone, I should say. It's a touchback. I'll admit, I was a little skeptical on that one. I'm like 60-40 that it was a fumble. I'll let it rock. It made it more interesting. It's pro wrestling rules. Let's go with it, right? It was, uh, man. Man. Okay, so Buffalo gets the ball back with eight to go. Instead of being down ten, they're still down three. Still. They're down three with eight to go. They're going to get three bites at the apple here. They've missed the first one because of the fake punt. The second one. Long bomb to to Stefan Diggs. Right? Long bomb. Wide open. Did, did the microphone pick up the fart sound? Right through the fingers. Right through the fingers. I think Stefan Diggs is a pretty talented wide receiver. One of the better receivers in the league. I don't know, man. Um, it's going to be hard to live that one down. It's also going to be hard to live down the fact that when they played Kansas City earlier in the year, he had four catches for 24 yards. And this game, he had three catches for 21 yards, plus the seven-yard rush. Oh, yeah, by the way, he fumbled. Um, wow. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, that's rough. They wind up punting the ball. It happens, right? Um, oh, no, excuse me. I don't think they wind up punting the ball. They start driving there. My mistake. Uh, then Josh Allen fumbles the ball which would have been the ultimate, you see all the Madden curse memes online, they wind up recovering it, right? After Dalton Kincaid smacks it away to the old lineman, they convert, two minutes left with the ball, goes for the deep shot to Shakir, so they got two bites the apple, my mistake. I don't hate the throw. Should he have thrown it to Diggs underneath? Yeah. Yeah, he should have. But considering, I mean... Kansas City in this game didn't record a sack, right? They pressured Josh, but they didn't get to him. So he's probably thinking, I'm standing back here. I'm about to make the throw of my life to Khalil Shakir, and he's throwing him open. He did get open, but the D-line shoved him back just enough. Shoved an O-lineman right into his shoulder, his off shoulder, and uh, yeah, he gets bumped, winds up hopping it, one-hopping it into the end zone to Khalil Shakir. Obviously, that is not... That's not a catch, guys. I don't know if you know that. Um, Then, of course, we get Jim Nance and and Tony Romo. I was going to say Phil Simms. Jim Nance and Tony Romo discussing Tyler Bass. And I believe he explicitly said, as they were about to snap the ball, that Sean McDermott is confident that Tyler Bass would clutch up and come through for the team in a big situation if they needed him to. And what happened? Right as the words left his lips, everyone in western New York 
was trying to grab them and push them back in, but they could not do that because the ball was already sailing. Which way, Buffalo? Of course, wide right. Oh my goodness. Oh, by the way, minute 40 left here, still two timeouts, and, you know, whatever. Uh, They didn't get the ball back, obviously. Isaiah Pacheco did the job, and here we are talking about the Chiefs in their, what, sixth consecutive AFC Championship game? Why would you go about taunting the rising legend that is Patrick Mahomes about playing on the road? Remember we discussed this last week? I believe it was Deion Dawkins. I'm sorry if I'm misattributing this. Go back, listen to me. Listen to the old episode and tell me. I'm not going to do it. Um, we don't got time for that. But no, admittedly, it's it's bizarre to me. And look, it didn't look like he played angry or anything crazy, and I don't know if he brought it up after the game, but why poke the bear? Why feel like you have some some kind of crazy advantage that somehow multiple-time Super Bowl champion Patrick Mahomes hasn't encountered? He's trailed in fourth quarters of Super Bowls. You think he cares that you're going to throw snowballs at his receivers mid-play while they're trying to catch it? His receivers, four weeks ago, couldn't catch a cold. I don't think he cares one bit. I mean, it's rough, man. It's really rough. And it it brings me to a little bit of a a side point here that I've seen getting brought up. And and admittedly, I don't know the answer. Where does Patrick Mahomes rank all time right now? Where does Patrick Mahomes rank all time right now? Let me read you some stats. 57% completion percentage, 300 touchdowns, 226 interceptions, one MVP, one Super Bowl MVP, two Super Bowl victories, and some losses. It's John Elway. Let me read you Patrick Mahomes' stat line. 66.5% completion percentage, 219 touchdowns to 63 interceptions, Already two-time MVP, already two-time Super Bowl MVP, already two-time Super Bowl champion. I'm not going to begin to discuss the differences in the style of play, right? We all know that the game is more wide open. The skill set of John Elway would play significantly well in the modern game. It'd be tremendous, right? Tremendous. It wouldn't be mid-20s touchdowns, which is his career high. It would be perhaps something closer to a Patrick Mahomes, you know, 30 touchdowns, 40 touchdowns, who knows. But if Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs go into Baltimore and beat the Ravens, he will guarantee himself at the least in six seasons as a starter. Six. Six seasons. He will have two wins in the Super Bowl, at least. Perhaps two and two, perhaps three and one. I argue for you, it might already put him above Elway. If we're talking pure talent, we can have a different discussion, right? Then we're talking Marino, then we're talking also Elway as well, but it has nothing to do with the accolades. It's the thrower of the football and the mobility and the vision and yada, 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 yada. In six years, 
he might have topped the Hall of Fame resume of John Elway. Next year is his year 29 season. John Elway played until he was 38 years old, started 10-plus games every year from when he was 23. Lost multiple Super Bowls, obviously, as we all know. Let's look at another one here. Let's look at one of his contemporaries, and this is one that's getting floated around. Four-time MVP. Whoa. 475 touchdowns to 105 interceptions. Yeah, Patrick, you're not catching that ratio. 65% completion percentage. As I said, four-time MVP. Just a one-time Super Bowl champion, zero-time Super Bowl loser. That's Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers' touchdown-to-interception ratio in his career is kind of bonkers, if we're being honest. It's better than that of Peyton Manning. It's better than that of Tom Brady. Um, However, those two quarterbacks have accomplished more than Aaron Rodgers. So where does team success factor in when we're talking resume? I think Aaron Rodgers is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't think that's really a hot take. I think Patrick Mahomes could retire after this Sunday and probably also be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Maybe that is a little bit hotter of a take. This is coming from the guy that told you Matthew Stafford's late career renaissance in L.A. could leave him a Hall of Famer. Stand by that. We'll see how it goes. Might go well, might not. Either way, it's intriguing to talk about a rising, and I said rising legend, because he's already a superstar. He's ascended to the top of the game multiple times. What's beyond that? Well, the Hall of Fame. The legendary rankings, if you will. Uh, The little Madden leaderboard they have in Connected Franchise that shows you the legacy score. No, but in all seriousness, that's what he's fighting for. He's chasing ghosts. And how much more will he be able to achieve in the next 10 years? Will his peak be the first six? It wouldn't be unheard of, right? Did Marino make it back to the Super Bowl? Did Rodgers make it back to the Super Bowl? Elway's wins came at the end. Not everybody's do. Maybe Mahomes eventually. Maybe it'll be two years, three years. Maybe this will be the last time we see him on championship game Sunday. But recent history tells me that's probably not the case, guys. It's probably not the case. Intriguing to try and evaluate someone like that as we're still on the rise. We talked about Brady as we went on when he got to three and four and five. Mahomes is at two. But the trajectory is there to be preposterous. Let's see what happens. Number five in the standout seven, let's talk NFL honors finalists. Going to not give away any of my picks. Not giving them away. We're doing that next weekend. Pro Bowl week is always our award picks. Tune in next week for that. And this year, for the first time, we're doing the all-name team. Yeah, the all-pros are cool and all that, and the awards, yeah, yeah, yeah. The all-name team is really where it's at. Going to go painstakingly through the NFL rosters. Anybody that played a game is eligible, or if I guess if you're on a practice squad, if I find a name that is enough of a banger. But that will be fun, and that will be the first ever Necessary Roughness all-name team next week. But here we are, number five in the standout seven. Let's Let's buckle it down here. Top five for all these awards was announced by the NFL. Voted on by the Associated Press, obviously. The most valuable player, top 
five finalists. We have Bills quarterback Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, and the hands-down favorite, based on what I've been reading, Christian McCaffrey, the running back for the 49ers, Dak Prescott, quarterback for the Cowboys, and his teammate, excuse me, McCaffrey's teammate, Brock Purdy. Interesting that Purdy cracks the top five? I think so. But, uh, alrighty. Offensive player of the year, we have Tyreek Hill, Lamar Jackson, CeeDee Lamb, Christian McCaffrey, and Dak Prescott. I'll say this. I tend to think, and I don't have data on this, and I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to shoot from the hip. I tend to think the idea of a quarterback winning offensive player of the year, you need to either have two quarterbacks who had tremendously stellar seasons, or you need to have a non-quarterback winning MVP. If memory serves, we had Peyton Manning with a tremendous year in Denver winning the Offensive Player of the Year, while Adrian Peterson won the MVP. I believe that was the case. Correct me, comments section, or wherever, if you'd like to, but I believe that is the last time uh, we got that kind of a swap. Um, Anyway, Defensive Player, and the reason I'm not going too deep on the numbers for these, by the way, guys, I don't want to tip my hand here. you got to tune in next week for that, you know? I'd love to give it all away, but Got to keep you on the hook. Defensive Player of the Year candidates, we have Deron Bland, a record setter for the Cowboys at corner. Uh, And some pass rushers in Max Crosby of the Raiders, Miles Garrett of the Browns, Micah Parsons, Defensive Player of the Year candidate almost every year in his career at this point. And speaking of consistent candidates, T.J. Watt is our final nominee. Offensive Rookie of the Year candidates, we have Detroit Lions teammates Jameer Gibbs and Sam Laporta. I was going to do a whole thing a few weeks ago about how Sam Laporta might be the best rookie tight end ever. And uh, I kind of scrapped it because we need, you know, it was a little long for time. And also, I, I mean, who was going to argue with it? I mean, his numbers were kind of kind of tremendous for a rookie tight end. Um, also on here, speaking of tremendous rookies, Puka Nakua of the LA Rams, Bijan Robinson of the Falcons, and CJ Stroud of the Houston Texans. Defensive Rookie of the Year, Stroud's teammate Will Anderson of the Texans as well. Eagles D-lineman Jalen Carter, Steelers DB Joey Porter Jr., Rams D-lineman Kobe Turner, and Seahawks DB Devin Witherspoon. Coach of the Year candidates, Dan Campbell of the Lions, John Harbaugh of the Ravens, D'Amico Ryans of the Texans, Kyle Shanahan of the Niners, and Kevin Stefanski of the Cleveland Browns. Assistant Coach of the Year, which I'm not sure we're honestly going to give out next week. I think we'll just let the league decide on their own, but I'll give you the nominees. Ben Johnson, the OC of the Lions. Mike McDonald, the DC of the Ravens. Todd Munkin, the OC of the Ravens. Jim Schwartz, the DC of the Cleveland Browns. And Bobby Slowick, the OC of the Texans. Now, there's one award left here, and I I left it because we had a discussion about this before. And we're going to put a pin in this. We're going to put one more thing, and then we're going to have a final say on it next week. Comeback Player of the Year nominees. We have Baker Mayfield of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Good candidate, had a good year. Matt Stafford of the Rams. All right. Tua Tungavailoa off of several concussions. Okay, fair enough. Then we have the two that everyone's discussing. We have Joe Flacco, quarterback of the Browns for a handful of games, and DeMar Hamlin, fake punt extraordinaire now, but safety of the Buffalo Bills. Um... 
the reason I'm bringing this up is twofold. One, I encountered a Twitter thread, or an X thread if you will, that was intriguing to me. Because one person noted that John Mechie was not a candidate. And he beat leukemia. And he played 16 games this year for the Houston Texans. And admittedly, I was one of those people as well who had forgotten that John Mechie... Because look, he didn't have a tremendous year. I'm not saying you need to have a tremendous year to win this award. Because, I mean, DeMar Hamlin is seemingly the odds-on favorite to win it. John Mechie did overcome cancer. I did forget that, and I apologize for not mentioning his name. Um, Then we have people discussing in the replies that 16 catches for 160 yards is not enough to win the award. And I think we need to make a distinction what this award is for. Because... And you know what? Hold on. While we're here, let's bring up the previous winners of the Comeback Player of the Year award in the NFL. So in last year, we had Geno Smith, right? Geno Smith, written off, completely cast away by the Jets, back up on the Giants. Okay. Turned into have a pretty darn good year. 2021 off of a knee injury, Joe Burrow. Okay, 2020, Alex Smith off of several injuries, thrown away by the 49ers, things like that. Ryan Tannehill, cast away by the Dolphins, also with some injuries. Andrew Luck off of injuries as well, neck injury, I believe. Keenan Allen in 17, Jordy Nelson in 16. Back to Eric Berry, I believe he was also battling cancer um, prior to winning that one. Then we have Rob Gronkowski on the field injuries as well. So the interesting part, is for the bulk of these players, it is kind of required that you at the least had an impactful season on the field. Um, I don't know, guys. It, it's a tough spot to be put in, I imagine, if you're one of the writers to discuss this award and somehow piece together an argument against DeMar Hamlin without feeling like a bad guy. And you know what? I'm I'm just a guy talking into a microphone in his room here. I guess I'll I'll be the devil's advocate for you. And look, if you go back far enough, Teddy Bruschi was a co-winner with Steve Smith, right? Teddy Bruschi overcoming seizures and things like that. So, people want it to be, seemingly, Joe Flacco because of the story that was Joe Flacco coming off his couch and becoming, you know, a playoff caliber quarterback. And that's fair enough. I think you could make a fair argument for John Mechie like I discussed. You could make an argument for Tua Tungavailoa, right? Overcoming what seemed to be, at the time, look, I was on the show, go back in the episodes, I was on here legitimately discussing that maybe he should retire. Because the injuries to your brain are not something to mess around with. You know what else is not something to mess around with? Injuries to your heart. I was also on this very show talking about how DeMar Hamlin... And look, I said that it shouldn't even be in his control. And I admittedly stand by that take. I think the league and or the Buffalo Bills should have said, Look, 
we want to make you a, an advocate for the team or a coach or an analyst or something. We're going to cut you a big old check so you do not have to risk your life on the football field anymore. And I know you want to be a football player. I really do. Obviously, you worked hard your whole life to get here. But it's not worth it. It's not worth risking your life to run a fake punt in a divisional game that you're not going to win anyway. It's not worth it. I know you worked really hard and you rehabilitated and things like that. It's just not worth it. And if if they want to give this award to DeMar Hamlin because, look, he's risking his life just being out there, I don't have a counter-argument to that. That's fair enough. And I'll, I'll kind of end it with this. Joe Flacco believes the award should go to DeMar Hamlin. Is that Joe Flacco being a good dude? It quite possibly might be. But at the end of the day, if a fellow competitor, both in the league and for this award, can say, look, what he's risking to go out there and be out there every day is enough to trump what I've accomplished, then I guess I defer to Joe. I'll give away my winner next week. Admittedly, I might not listen to Joe, but I thought it was important for you guys, since we discussed this before, to know how one of the candidates stood on this particularly one that a lot of people believe is a leader, a leading candidate, and should be potentially the winner. That's where we stand on the whole comeback player of the year saga. Again, tune in next week. We'll give it away. Maybe it'll be Hamlin. Maybe not. I'll let it percolate for the week. Number six in the standout seven. Just a quick breeze through the coaching carousel catch-up here. like that name. Uh, Tennessee Titans have hired... Cincinnati Bengals offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. If that name sounds familiar, it's for good reason. He worked with the Denver Broncos during Peyton Manning's time there. Uh, moved on to the Lions and the Raiders as a quarterback's coach and then with the Bengals. Uh, and here he is. Now he's going to be the head of his own coaching staff for the Titans, potentially rebuilding entirely without Derrick Henry. Um, Jim Harbaugh confirmed to the L.A. Chargers, good for them, uh, he also reportedly had multiple interviews with the Falcons, who made their hire as well, and it was not Bill Belichick. It was Raheem Morris, the D coordinator of the L.A. Rams. And it's interesting to me, because Raheem Morris was a head coach so long ago, guys, and he just wasn't really ever given another shot, and I always found it kind of weird, you know? I mean, he was in Tampa from 9 to 11, right? They go 3-13, and 13, Magically go ten and six. Boom! Immediately, that twenty ten Tampa team is this is this back with Josh Freeman? Look at two Josh Freeman references in the same episode. Josh Freeman twenty five touchdowns to six picks. Garrett Blunt at running back. Leading receiver was Mike Williams. No, not that Mike Williams. And Kellen Winslow Jr. Cadillac Williams was on this team. Man, this takes takes me back, huh? And then the next year they just collapsed. They went four and twelve and. Freeman threw 22 interceptions, and before you knew it, he was out of a job. Okay. Interesting. Um, got a chance to be an interim with Atlanta. Coach 11 games, 4-11 and 11 in 2020. Um, intriguing to me that it's taken this long for him to get another shot at a coaching job, but I guess, I don't know. It, did, it didn't go as well as that 10-6 would imply in Tampa. Maybe they thought they'd be building towards something, and they didn't. Well, when your QB throws 22 interceptions, it's usually not good for business. But either way, um, 
The Carolina Panthers also got their man. They've hired Bucks offensive coordinator Dave Canales. Canales? Let's go with Canales as their new head coach. Let's see the direction he goes. And Tampa Bay ties might help when they're trying to bid for Mike Evans, as I assume they will or should, uh, to try and bolster that receiving core in Carolina. See what they've got in Bryce Young. Uh, additionally, we've got Vic Fangio leaving Miami for Philly after one year as their DC, which is odd. So Philly will be having new offensive and defensive coordinators next year. Um, quickly moving over to front office news. We have Tom Telesco. He's going to be the new GM of the Vegas Raiders, formerly of the Chargers. Should know the division pretty well. Um, second interviews this week for... New York Giants offensive coordinator Mike Kafka with the Seattle Seahawks, I believe also for Dan Quinn. Um, Pete Carroll reportedly interviewed with the Chargers, but obviously that didn't go anywhere. Belichick had two interviews with Atlanta. That didn't go anywhere. It's weird that Belichick isn't really getting any biters, and everyone's really using this as an opportunity to pile on. I've had to cape up for Belichick like nine times on this show. If we're going to do that again, I'm going to save it for the offseason because we've got actual football to discuss. One more point here. Number seven in the standout seven. And this isn't necessarily a football point. I wanted to weigh in on some comments made by John Anik. I don't know if you all are big Ultimate Fighting Championship fans. UFC, that is. Or short. But he made some comments after one of the better title fights they've had in recent memory. A pretty darn good one. A close one that went down to the wire. And some fans online, as you're going to have with a close fight, were not very happy that it went to the challenger instead of the champion. Anik made these remarks, and I'm quoting from MMAfighting.com, Alexander Lee, who transcribed these quotes uh, from an episode of Anik and Florian podcast. I'm growing tired of the MMA space a bit, and the reason I'm mentioning this, by the way, before we get into it, is because I think it kind of applies to the NFL space as well. He references football in here, and I wanted to touch on the way some people perceive and discuss fans. Anyway, all that's set up for this quote. Growing tired of this MMA space a bit and just the morass of negativity when there is a close fight, because even if you and I both thought the challenger won the fight, we try to present that information respectfully. When I go on X or Twitter, or when I go on our YouTube comments, it seems like a lot of these fans are in attack mode. I don't know if they're casual fans or not, but I appreciate the passion. I'm getting to a point where at 45 years of age, I don't know how much time I have left in the MMA space. If I go do pro football, I'm not necessarily going to be dealing with the lowest common denominator all the time. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of malice and disrespect from the fan base. We can disagree. Don't take it from me. Take it from Demetrius Johnson and Kenny Florian, his colleague and a former champion, uh, who thought the challenger won the fight. I've just been very put off with the negativity that has permeated my feed since Saturday. Not sure how much longer I have in this space, honestly. Uh, I try to be accessible and engage with the fans, even though some of my broadcast partners are, their profile is so high, they can't possibly engage with fans on a regular basis. Uh, He continued, I've got three kids and just got better things to do with my time. So, my take is this. And if you're not interested in this, skip ahead, it's okay. I, I swear it'll come together, but by all means, that's fine. I find it intriguing that sometimes people tend to forget that the term fan is short for fanatic, right? Like, you're not going to get reasonable reactions from fans. When you look, when you watch a Raider game and you see the guy covered in spiked, uh, excuse me, wearing, wearing shoulder pads covered in spikes 
and with his face painted black and silver, he's not going to give you a rational interpretation of the X and O's. This is, you know, he's bleeding the team colors. That's a phrase for a reason. It's it's very significant to them. It's going to make their day or it's going to ruin their day. If your team gets eliminated from the postseason, it's going to ruin their week. It might ruin their month. They might be angry till the next sports season starts. And when you get rivaling opinions, right, when you get fans from two teams interacting with each other in a space that is so... I hesitate to say safe as social media or internet comment sections. Like, overwhelming majority, 99.9% of the time, you could say whatever you want to somebody online, nothing's going to happen, right? So they're going to curse at you, they're going to call you names, they're going to say this, that, and the third, they're going to hide behind the fact of the anonymity and things like that. If you're sitting in a stadium, you're looking at that guy. You might see that guy in the parking lot, where there are no security people like there are here in the stadium, right? So... It's, my message to John Anik would be just, in the words of Tyler the Creator, just walk away. Just turn off the screen. I, I don't get it. Tyler the Creator's famous comments on cyberbullying, of course. How is it real? Just turn off the screen and walk away. And if you're John Anik, you know, I'm not getting in his pocket, but millionaire, overwhelmingly successful play-by-play commentator, just don't read it, dude. Just move on. Right, I think he's tremendous at his job, and I I value him in that role. I mean, obviously, I don't have a vote in it, but as a fan, I think he's very good, and I think it would be a big loss for the sport if he were to move on. But the sport moves on, right? When a fighter leaves, they just move on. They get another champion. Francis Ngannou left the heavyweight division. They got another champion. It's the way it works, and it's. It's interesting in the fight game because I almost wonder if it's not as obvious as it is in sports, like team sports. You're rooting for laundry. Like, you're a New Yorker, so you're rooting for your New York team. And when Saquon Barkley becomes a free agent and goes and signs with the Ravens or the Commanders or some other team, some people may root for him when he's not playing their team. Other people will go, you left my team. You betrayed us. I thought we were like this. We were a team, right? I don't know. It's weird. It's weird also, like, to publicly make these comments. Like, I guess it's almost a plea to, like, hey, can you leave me alone? Which is fair, but, like, I don't know. Just move on, man. It's not that serious. It's really not. Anyway, before we move on from the standout seven here, one point of news and notes I wanted to touch on. Kayshawn Boutte, who played in the NFL this year, I believe. Uh, Yeah, didn't he play for the Patriots? Yeah, two catches on 19 yards, formerly of LSU, reportedly being arrested for placing illegal sports bets online during his time at LSU, in which he was betting when he was not of age with a fake account. He wagered 8,900 times, y'all. I mean, oh my goodness. That's, like, does that count all the legs to your parlays? Or like 8,900 straight bets, 8,900 parlays? And supposedly, he actually was coming out on top, I believe, in terms of the money won on those bets versus the money deposited. Which is kind of impressive. Um, now, if you're using a fake identity to do that, my question would be, how are you ever going to cash a check from your winnings? Right? Anyway, um, some of the wagers were on his school. So, you know, if you're a Kayshawn Boutte fan and you thought the Patriots should have used him more, maybe he'd break out. 
I'm not sure you're going to see him on the field anytime soon. That'll bring us to the end in a, to a whirlwind, whirlwind, excuse me, uh, standout seven in which we jumped sports and started talking crimes and things like that. But that doesn't matter. We're getting into my favorite part, your favorite part of the episode, the pick'em portion, and we only have two games to break down. That's right, folks. We have made it to Championship Sunday. Our first game, 3 p.m. January the 28th on CBS, the home of the Super Bowl. The Kansas City Chiefs, the defending champions at 13-6, and head into Baltimore to take on the 14-4 and Ravens. Chiefs, going to be without Sky Moore at wide receiver. Prince Tega Wanogo with a quad injury on the O-line. Joe Tooney with a pec injury on the O-line. And D-lineman Derek Nadi with a tricep. Questionable, some big names. Namely, starting running back Isaiah Pacheco with an ankle-slash-toe. Star wide receiver Kadarius Toney with a hip injury. Linebacker Willie Gay with a neck injury. And safety Mike Edwards with a concussion. The Ravens, listing just one as doubtful. Injury report, by the way, brought to you by NFL.com, as always. Doubtful linebacker Delshawn Phillips with a shoulder. Questionable wide receiver Tylen Wallace with a knee and two corners. Marlon Humphrey with a calf, and Rocky Sin with a knee. Now, as a reminder, who did I pick to win the AFC at the beginning of the year? The Bengals. Man, that looked good, huh? Who did I pick to win the AFC when we were talking on Wild Card Sunday? The Bills. Who did I pick last weekend? Picked the Ravens and the Chiefs. That's right, folks. After a 2-4 and four Wild Card weekend, we went undefeated in the divisional picks. Should you take my picks and gamble on them? No, as I will not be doing it either, because I do not trust them. Nor should you. Nostradonotic name is just a suggestion. Not a guarantee. We've got the Baltimore Ravens coming off of a tremendous win in the second half, especially over the Houston Texans, and we've got Kansas City, who snuck away, let's be honest, with a win over the Bills. It's hard for me any time we get to the postseason. It's it's almost Brady-ish. It's hard for me to pick against the Chiefs. And this is going to be a week that I have to do it. Now, I think Baltimore, particularly the team that played the Texans, looks like the best team in the NFL. If they show up like they looked in the second half against Houston... For the next eight quarters, Lamar Jackson will probably be holding an MVP trophy in one hand and the Lombardi trophy in the other. It's a big ask. Now, I'll say this. Steve Spagnolo, one of the better defensive coordinators in the league. Look, I'm, I'm going to talk up Spagnolo's resume as long as I can. Multiple-time Super Bowl champion as a D coordinator. Nobody talks about it. Doesn't interview him for anything. Doesn't matter. He's going to bring the pressure. And it's going to be a matter of if they can stay disciplined up front and try to bottle up Jackson in that hornet's nest that they want to craft around his pocket, or if he's going to be able to slip away and run for 100 yards like he did against Houston. I talked a couple weeks ago about Josh Allen entering the postseason. He ran the ball, I believe it was 15 times against Miami. I said, you can't do that. It's not sustainable. But you can do it in a four-game stretch, right? And oh, by the way, while I'm here, to do the tangent on the tangent like I love to do, 
I've said before that I think Josh Allen is a, is a pretty solid quarterback. I think he's got a rifle for an arm. I would say he's got a better arm than Lamar Jackson. The game that he just put up last week, I, I mean, it. how is it any worse than the games that Lamar Jackson puts up? I'm not trying to say Lamar Jackson is bad. I'm saying people say Lamar Jackson's not a quarterback. I mean, biggest game of the year, biggest game potentially of his career, Josh Allen threw for a buck 80 and ran for 70. Like, He's not putting up big stats in that game. What are we doing? He's not sitting in the pocket throwing for 350 like Baker Mayfield in a game they lose by eight. You know what I mean? Like, the guy had less passing yards than Jordan Love. Anyway, that's ju- that's just a point to, you know, people ripping out there. Uh, and I haven't been the, the hugest Lamar Jackson defender, but uh, some, of the, some of the ripping is insane. Anyway, back to the matter at hand featuring Lamar in that running game and what they're getting out of their backs, especially with Dalvin Cook coming in, and we'll see what Dalvin Cook can contribute for them. He wasn't much last week, but let's see how it goes. Um, I think Baltimore just has enough. The thing that makes me nervous when I see injuries to two corners for Baltimore on the injury report. Also, by the way, Mark Andrews not on the injury report because he's going to play. He is going to play in this game for the Baltimore Ravens. Huge one coming back. Although, admittedly, Isaiah likely looks tremendous out there. Do they have enough time to draw up some two tight end formations? Because they can get crazy. If they have two tight ends to block and then get some play action going, really rip up the seams, we'll see. Um, What it comes down to is Baltimore's defense and as an all-around team just looks too good. Kansas City, they beat Buffalo. They're good at winning these close games. They're good at winning in the postseason, obviously, two-time champions with Reed and Mahomes, you can only do it so often. It reminds me of uh, something we'd always hear a handful of years ago with the New York Giants and the Tom Coughlin days. They're great at turning it on. right? In 2007, they turned it on and they made the run. 2011, they turned it on and made the run. You can't always turn it on. Sometimes you go to start the car and you didn't warm it up and you got to get somewhere you need to go in five minutes and it's a five-minute drive and it's just not going to happen. I think if Baltimore can get a lead and force Kansas City to have to play catch-up, it's going to finally rear its ugly head that their skill positions just aren't good enough. I think Pacheco is tremendous. I think he's only getting better. Kelsey's had a case of the dropsies now and again this year. We saw Chiefs receivers against Buffalo actually look pretty darn good, right? I think it was Valdez-Scantling had a couple of pretty good grabs in that game. If they step up in the big moments, right? Maybe we'll be, t- be talking about another Chiefs Super Bowl. But uh, the smart money for me is on the team that's grinding it out and playing defense and running the ball and at home. And that's going to be the Baltimore Ravens. I know. I surprise myself even with this selection. 6.30 p.m. the NFC Championship game live from Detroit. Excuse me. Uh uh-uh, live from Santa Clara, California. The Detroit Lions, 14-5, head on the road to take on the 13-5, one-seeded San Fran 49ers. Lions going to be without O-lineman Jonah Jackson with a knee, and wide receiver Khalif Raymond also with a knee. Questionable backup QB Hendon Hooker with a tooth. You hope if you're a Lion fan, that won't matter at all. And corner Chase Lucas with an illness. 49ers, questionable. D-lineman Kyla Davis and linebacker Oren Burks with an ankle and shoulder, respectively. 
I'm going to be honest. San Francisco did not necessarily impress me in their game against Green Bay. They come away with a win, and look, you don't have to impress me at all. You could walk your way through the playoffs winning by three and winning by two and still be holding the Lombardi Trophy. But when push comes to shove and I have to pick the games, one team hung in and hung in and pulled away, and the other team had the opposing quarterback with the ball, minute 40-something, chance to win the game, and he willingly threw it away, right? And oh, by the way, if they would have made a field goal earlier, who knows, maybe they run the ball there, maybe they walk downfield and get another chance for a field goal to try and win that game. They being the Green Bay Packers, of course, with Coach LaFleur praying on the sideline, apparently. Uh, Worth noting, San Francisco did miss a field goal, too. I know. It was one for one. I get it. Um, But they played it closer than uh, Detroit had to as Detroit pulled away at the end. Although they both ended with bad interceptions by the opposing quarterback, so let's call it like for like. The question mark is Debo Samuel's health. Because, you know, the way they seem to scheme this offense, he is... The straw that stirs the drink, to use the Reggie Jackson phrase. Obviously, Christian McCaffrey is their guy. He's the bell cow on that offense. But there's not the same explosiveness as when they're putting Debo Samuel, flexing him out here, moving him over here, and the defense has to constantly be looking. McCaffrey, the majority of time, you're going to get him in the backfield. Occasionally, you'll get him flexing out on a short pass or something like that. But uh, I don't know. It, It takes away some of the creativity that Kyle Shanahan can flex on the other side. Another thing I want to add, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Green Bay's O-line is pretty good, but no sacks for the 49ers? In a game like that, that's kind of odd to me, considering who's on that defensive line, considering what they're trotting out there trying to do. On the other hand, you have the Detroit Lions pass rush, who look like they were racing around Baker Mayfield, like they were, you know... (laughs) ready to give him a big old hug, and it's his birthday. It's uh, it's intriguing to me to see that discrepancy. Now, obviously, Tampa Bay's O-line, I guess, isn't as good. Is that maybe the takeaway you'd like to have? Um, but the takeaway I will have in seeing Jameer Gibbs getting utilized more, in seeing, obviously, Amon Ross St. Brown doing what he always does and showing up and putting up statistics, right? Sam Laporta, trying to get out there, battling through injury, had nine catches in that game. I think Jamison Williams is going to be an X-factor in this game. I've told you all year San Francisco was the best team in the NFC. You go back a couple of weeks, I picked San Francisco to win the NFC. I had them beating Philly. I had them winning the Super Bowl. I've got them losing to Detroit. And... This may backfire in my face. I said going into the Tampa game, the X factor, realistically, in terms of Detroit blowing it, would be Jared Goff turning the ball over. And you know what? He didn't. And maybe I'm being unfair to Jared Goff. Because if you look through the postseason career of Jared Goff, two touchdowns, no picks against Tampa Bay, one touchdown, no pick against L.A., Back in 2020, when he was a Ram, they lost to Green Bay. He didn't throw a pick in that game. They beat Seattle the week before. He didn't throw a pick in that game. 
Obviously, we all know what happened in the Super Bowl against New England. It was an awful game for them offensively, period. He threw one pick, threw a pick the week before against New Orleans. He's not a high turnover guy, seemingly, seemingly, in the postseason here. So, you know what? I think Dan Campbell and the Lions, it's their year. And I think we're going to get one more battle between a cat and a bird on Super Bowl Sunday. I am taking the Ravens to win the American Football Conference, knocking off the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs, and I am a little nervous about it. On the other side, I am taking the Detroit Lions to go to their first Super Bowl in team history. And I'm a little nervous about it. You know what? That's a good thing. If I could walk away from either of these picks confident that one team is going to win, it might not be as fun of an NFL championship Sunday for us. And at the end of the day, I just want all of us to have a lot of fun watching some quality football because it's the last time we're going to get a, a double header here. Got three games left, folks. Enjoy it, whether you're with your family, your friends at a sports bar, or sitting there watching it on your computer by yourself. Hope you have a good one. And you know what? That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode, the Championship Weekend Preview. Episode number 188 of the Necessary Roughness Podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. Thank you for tuning in. If it was your first episode, stick around. We've got a breakdown next weekend. we got the all-name team coming up. If it was your 188th episode, man, we'll print some t-shirts for 200 or something, and I'll mail one to you, because we're getting darn close. As always... Thank you for tuning in, and I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic, signing off.